Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today I'm really excited to bring another expert on the show that I think will be a huge hit, Dr. Ron Garbo. And uh, first, let's just say, hey, D- Dr. Ron, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I think, you know, you and I were chatting and, so, and with our colleague Vivek as well. And today we're going to really try to focus on some of the paradigm shifts that are happening in the health scene right now. And also a really interesting topic, I think, is how HRV might actually play a role in the in helping with the opioid crisis that's going on right now. And, um, you know, how does that sound as far as diving into some of those topics? That sounds great. Awesome. Yeah. So to give folks a little bit of background on you, um, you know, Dr. Garbo completed specialty residence training in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Ohio State University Medical Center. And I'm sure he appreciates that I didn't forget to say the on the Ohio State. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. I actually remember the meeting where they told us the name had changed. We all kind of turned our heads for a moment and said, okay. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, and, you know, you've got a a laundry list of credentials here, but I'm going to try to give folks some highlights in the sense that uh, you've seen and done a lot in your clinical career. Uh, You maintain an active practice as a clinical associate faculty at Eastern Virginia Medical School, and you have 20 years experience in neurorehabilitation, interventional and integrative chronic pain management, and you're currently a clinical investigator for the first randomized controlled trial design study looking at HRV biofeedback for the treatment of chronic pain in veterans. And you've also authored a chapter on neuromuscular electrophysiology in, in a textbook. And um, so, again, kind of mentioned the list goes on. You've done everything from being in, in the Ohio State's, the Ohio State's first walk-on All-American wrestler, entered into the school's Hall of Fame as a top male scholar-athlete, uh, awarded Distinguished Service Award for physicians uh, by Physicians for Peace, and also are just really interested in kind of the crossroads between athletic burnout, healthcare, the opioid crisis, and HRV wearable devices. So uh, lots and lots of stuff going on. I'm, I'm really excited to dig into this stuff with you, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Yes, it's my pleasure. I love this topic. Awesome. So, you know, um, there's many different ways we can dive at this, but when we say that there's paradigm shifts happening in health, um, that's that's kind of a broad topic. And then we've got uh, you know, it seems broad until we start digging into it. And then uh, we also have this kind of piece about HRV relating to the op- opioid crisis, which seems seems much more specific. But I think to give folks a little background, the opioid crisis, you know, if it's if it's not in your friends and family, then you it might not be completely on your radar. But it's something that affects apparently over 2 million Americans. And we've even had 
Uh, I think in 2016, there was 42,000 deaths that were related to opioid overdose alone. And, um, you know, that's an average of 115 opioid overdose deaths each day. And so those are some of the, you know, 2 million people and tens of thousands of deaths. Uh, And so this is something that even if it's not in your immediate friends or family, you probably know somebody that is actually uh, using or addicted to or potentially abusing these drugs. And is that something that, Am I kind of in the right ballpark when I'm yes, talking about absolutely. the Okay. Absolutely. This this can touch this can touch anybody. Um you know, um I uh, I've been doing this for 20 years and I burned out about 15 years ago. And it was trying to find a uh a safe and reasonable way through this. Um obviously we know about um how opioids were vastly uh have been vastly overprescribed, and there's even, you know, been some of our top institutions. I, I got referrals from internationally renowned institutions where they were on these very dangerous medication plans, and that caused a great deal of stress. And I even had atrial fibrillation, a heart arrhythmia, 15 years ago. It took me a few years to find meditation. Uh, and then I found heart rate variability biofeedback, and then ever since then, I've been trying to figure out and explain what was going on in me as I worked my way through burnout, as well as how can I apply it practically to patients, and then also I'm involved in, some, as you know, some research studies. And wording is actually very critically important, and even certain simple concepts, if 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 you keep them in mind, can be very important and helpful when you try and wade through this uh, very, very difficult problem. Uh, I'll throw out three statistics in, in general. Um, over the last 20 years, this started about in the mid-90s, and the United States is by far the most uh, dangerous pain management in the world, whether it's prescribing opioids or uh, even with uh, surgeries and excessive procedures. In addition to that, um, it's by far in orders of magnitude the most expensive. And then the third is we don't actually have any objective methods to prove that we're any better than any other industrialized nation. So when you have those three statistics and you look at them, um, uh, it's a tragedy and it's a crisis. But on the other hand, I, I do think there are some uber-type um, uh, concepts, and you're already seeing some, whether it's Amazon trying to develop uh, health wellness non-for-profit uh, to help their employees to become healthier. You're, you're seeing many um, wearable innovations and things like that to help compliance and so forth. So there's a lot of things happening, and, and hopefully I can lay down a few concepts that uh, or at least um, uh, can put can help uh, people, help teams uh, work in a more cohesive manner, and even the family members that are are also trying to work through this terrible problem. Mm, yeah, it's it that's a that's a great background to have, and you know when we talk about drugs like opioids. Um, you know, I, I always kind of just think back to what 
what's kind of the root of what we're trying to solve by introducing these to an individual, right? And so, yeah, yeah, go so go ahead. Let's just jump right in. So first of all, one of the things I like to say is an opioid is neither uh, good or evil. It's either used or misused. It comes from a flower. You know, uh, aspirin comes from a willow bark. Um, because we purify it, doesn't make it bad. However, if you have a bleed in your brain, aspirin can be devastating. But if you're having a heart attack, it could save your life. So aspirin comes from willow bark, and it's not good or bad. Same with an opioid. I want you to try and think of the word uh, addiction. I want you to think of the word craving. All addictions are craving blank. So mm. the focus is on the craving in my mind. Now, I'm a neurorehabilitationist. I see people with uh, traumatic brain injuries, spinal cord injuries. I, I see the gamut of injuries. So uh, opioid um, is, uh, attaches onto the mu receptor, and it's clearly the, the most efficacious for relieving pain. And I have, uh, again, the wide gamut of patients. Now, if I give you something that only lasts for a few hours and you've had terrible pain for years and you get great relief for a few hours, what do you start worrying about? If you're prescribed that four and five times a day, what happens is you become actually fearful of those mu receptors going empty. So then you end up in a hypervigilant state, always counting your pills, worried if I'm in the office, whether I'm going to. Uh, be accessible, or and so you get wrapped up into a hypervigilant state, fearful, and this is established that people with chronic pain become fearful of future movement, future pain, and future injury, and they get stuck in that fearful response. Now, they have a physical problem uh, causing uh, what's called nociceptive pain, the physical pain, um, but then there's this, um, I call it the fire, uh, and they get stuck. And so um, I try and separate uh, the physical component from this hypervigilance. And I, use, I like to use the word hypervigilance uh, so that we move away from anxiety, OCD, panic attacks. All those, for me, uh, you know, you don't have to be a physician to know when somebody's stuck in hypervigilance. If you start using words like PTSD and panic disorder, you start going into a realm that can get very confused and murky. I like the words, and you know, whether you're talking bipolar or PTSD, these entities are sustained hypervigilance causing depletion. Depression, you can think of as physiologic exhaustion of the autonomic nervous system. So those are depletions. So, so PTSD, um, bipolar, these are various forms of hypervigilance, and you become fatigued or burnout. Uh, and and we, if we can start measuring and augmenting the autonomic nervous system, we maybe have a pathway out. So one of the... Ways I will approach it, I will always address the physical component. And so let me back up for a second. Mm -hmm. 
and, and, and again, I'm oversimplifying, but there's three basic types of pain. One is um, neuropathic pain, which is if the regulatory system is damaged, um, you can have nerve pain and so forth. I'm going to set that one aside for today's discussion because that gets complicated. But if you burn your finger that your, and your regulatory mechanisms are still working, that, you know, that's an a, appropriate pain response. And people who don't have any pain responses, that genetic disorder, they actually have very poor survival. So the pain is there to warn you. And then if you're either depleted or hypervigilant, uh, that can be additive. So this emotional context can be additive. So to simplify it, I'll talk about the fire, which might be uh, the spinal, um, the, the, the compression fracture of your spine, and then the gasoline. Gasoline does not cause fires, but it certainly makes them worse. And so the hypervigilant and depleted state can amplify pain. So if I work on the physical component and explain it well enough and develop a decent enough plan, it allows me an opportunity now to have this conversation about the amplifiers of pain. And I'll do this analogy where, you know, I'm working on the fire. Whether it might include, you know, a, a procedure, an injection, a prescription, maybe a long-acting opioid. Okay, might be a mm-hmm. reasonable choice. So in general, I'm um, much stingier with short-acting opioids, but I'm actually uh, a proponent in the right situation for some of these newer long-acting opioids. There's a molecule called buprenorphine, and it doesn't have to be given by mouth. It can be now given uh, uh, in a patch and now even subcutaneously for a week or a month at a time. So it can cover the physical component and get somebody in the ballpark. I call it a platform. I tell people not to put their hope in this because platforms help you succeed. What what really is going to happen is that you have these two buckets of gasoline and I need to I need you to learn how to stop flailing them around and and stop making the fire worse. So I, I create this deal with them and I break it in two. So if you have a loved one or you know somebody and you're you know, scratching your head and you're trying to figure out is their chronic pain physical or emotional or when I'm teaching residents, I just I said make it simple. It's both. Right. And I'll right. say, let's let's tackle the physical component, get you to understand it, and then that will often allow me the opportunity to talk about this other component. So that's that's huge. That's a lot of really important stuff. And that, let me see if I can summarize it to make sure I followed appropriately. And you know, the of the three types of pain, neuro, neuropathic pain, which we're going to kind of table. And then having an appropriate pain response to something like an injury um, or, you know, like you said, it's the fire. It's an acute response. And then it can be, let's, you, I mean, for our purposes, we can call it it's a physical cause of pain without disrupting the surveillance mechanism. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so that's kind of the fire. And then the emotional or the hypervigilant or the fatigue and burnout that comes from that is gasoline that adds fuel to that fire and can amplify in the pain and main or maintain more area under the curve so to speak for of pain over the long term kind of chronically uh, right. more so than 
just a physical injury. Right, and you get stuck in this vicious cycle. So you can just imagine if you have chronic daily pain, in addition to the hypervigilance, but you also have the pain, which is a feedback loop for, for, for more depletion. So the, the pain itself uh, reverberates and you get stuck in this, this circle. Uh, and then if you've only had relief from a Vicodin that lasts four hours, um, you become fearful that that receptor is going to become depleted. So I like to say fear is the fuel. Uh, and uh, it's not the opioid, it's the craving. So I try and take off the physical component as best as I can. And then now we're going to talk about how to un unlock and, and change that, um, what's going on with your uh, hypervigilance and depletion. Okay. And so um, I like the, there's a difference. I know there's, it's nothing's ever as black and white as people think. And so even from an opioid perspective, um, there's a chance that these longer term, slower acting uh, opioids are possibly a step in the right direction. Because like you said, like aspirin has its uh, uses and its misuses, same with opioids, that this may help in those situations where you have that physical pain, that acute injury, and that appropriate pain response, that you can introduce this as an appropriate uh, yes. relief for that without uh, worrying so much about adding to that potential of hypervigilance and that um, chasing the, the non-pain scenario. Yeah, there's a simpler model that's, that, that I think might be easier for people to get, and that's quitting smoking. I, I personally recommend um, the nicotine patches. Again, I'm, I'm breaking the nicotine physical issue you have in half and, and have you address the psychological behavioral component. So I'm going to give you a nicotine patch. I'm going to, let's not worry about the, the negative consequences of nicotine right now. You've been smoking for a couple of years, so a few weeks aren't going to be that bad. And, and, and let's take off the physical urge to smoke. Now, we have to break this cueing, this, you know, the hand-to-mouth thing. You know, the hand-to-mouth, whether it's a pill, a shot glass, a cigarette, um, that, that's what you have to break. And so the nicotine platform gives you a chance to succeed. And when people succeed with the behavioral component, they, they even come to me, uh, whether it's an opioid patch or, you know, a nicotine patch, they then come to me. It's, it's much easier to work your way off when you break it in half and deal with the hypervigilant hand-to-mouth behavioral component first. Mm, that's huge. And, and so, you know, you talked about how there's different contributors to what then ends up being kind of a depleted, fatigued, and burnout state and things uh, like this hypervigilance and uh, cycles of pain and then fear of that pain and even uh, PTSD in certain situations. Um, and then you talked about measuring and strengthening the ANS. And obviously, the autonomic nervous system is like a key phrase that I latch on to. And many in the community will have heard me say before being in the HRV world. But, you know, how do you, how does the, how do these changes and things kind of relate back to 
what the patient's experiencing or what you might be measuring from the autonomic nervous system itself. Right. So let me take one step back. Um, you know, the human performance curve uh, was introduced uh, over 100 years ago. And I really think that that is the, the concept that will link the medical world with the wellness world. And, and if we can avoid, like, so simplifying PTSD, there's an event in your childhood that keeps you ratcheted up with age as you have less reserve. You might also become stuck, hypervigilant, and then depleted. And as you start moving to the right of that performance curve, uh, it shows that greater and greater amounts of arousal actually reduce performance. So, so if we have numbers measuring hypervigilance, and you have numbers measuring depletion, you know, uh, I was a wrestler, and it, you know, the the people at most risk for burnout in athletics. Uh, have been shown to be women, solo sports, and high expectations. So these solo sport athletes are at high risk for burnout because you you don't get to dissipate uh, some of the blame internally uh, for poor success. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they're at high risk. So if you have numbers, and what we fall to, you know, we know that on the performance curve that more arousal, more work leads to success. There is a point where trying harder works against you. And if we get better numbers that you are stuck in hypervigilance and that you are depleted, it's a cue to say, you know, you know, you have to pick your moments. This is three nights before the big event. Now is not the time to 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 be excessively vigilant. Uh, and it's time to recover. So that's the model I use and proposed in 2013 to apply it to pain management and sort of bring the link. Now, I think HRV science is the science to, to, to execute that. So, you know, I think short-term uh, HRV values are, are good. When I, and I haven't come into the office and they're just sitting there and we do a five-minute recording, and, and it shows that they're in a high-stress response. You know, remember, that is highly contextual. If, right. they had ju- if they had just almost got into a car accident and were late, you know, that's appropriate. But if, if they're actually sitting there calmly and happy and their, their, the HRV values are, uh, indicate hypervigilance, there's a disconnect. So I, I use those five-minute numbers for insight. Um, you know, is this an appropriate use? You know, the, the, I call it turbo. Uh, so turbo is very powerful but not efficient. Mm-hmm. And, and I also say when you go, uh, when you're also always in turbo and you go to the adrenaline bank, they take a cortisol cut. So each time you go to the adrenaline bank, they take a little cut. And you can't go to the mm-hmm. bank uh, too many times without, you know, being exposed to cortisol will turn fast twitch muscle into slow twitch. You know, you won't heal as well. You won't build the neurons at night you're supposed to build. So uh, that's that's how I, some of the terminology I like to use. Right. No, that makes sense. And I mean, 
this is maybe uh maybe there's somebody technical that will uh squash my analogy here but basically i would think you know if you why does a rocket you know people think of a rocket ship going to space and like 90% of it is fuel right and that's because it has to accelerate to an incredible speed and incredible speed and acceleration but it's not efficient by any means right compared to some yeah. like electric car or something like that that can yeah. probably drive the same number of miles eventually uh, i don't know you know again technical squashing of my analogy but um but is much more efficient uh, because it's not going at such a high speed and resisting gravity directly and all that stuff so um yeah yeah so so hrv values help you kind of navigate this space and you've been using hrv in your practice i think longer than almost anyone that i've heard and how how long have you been using it uh i so like i said i i burned out around uh 2002 it took me a couple of years to find meditation, and then I found HRV uh, probably around two, 2007 and started to try and apply it in the clinic around 2008. Um, and slowly learning from my patients and back and forth, uh, ask, you know, some of them transform their lives. I say, okay, we got to go back. When, when uh, you know, what were the pivotal points? And so in our clinic, we now have uh, three dates that we document. Um, we document the hopeful moment when there was a, an explanation or, or something that, that sort of hit with them uh, and suddenly they had hope. And you know, part of that, again, I, I put a huge importance on not putting your hope in a pill, a knife, a clinician, a clinic, um, these are platforms and resets. Those are the and and they can they can be very helpful and they can be used or misused. But the hope has to be put uh, frequently in in your ability to self-regulate uh, your HRV and your emotional. Now, what I got to get some coaches and and performers off is focused in on zone performance. They're they're focused in on that peak on that performance curve. I actually, the, so the paradigm shift, one of the things, I got to shift them into valuing, uh, understanding, and now we can measure uh, recovery. And, okay. and, and so, so we work really hard to be really powerful if we're in a powerful sport, or it could be, say, powerful over three hours. Uh, and we get focused in on how to do that. And so we're we're measuring loads all the time, and we can get fixated because measuring load um, is very contextual. So, so you know, in the athletic world, you're you're looking at these numbers, and sometimes you're spending too much time, and you get confused. With my patients, these, you know, and they're having panic attacks or migraines or whatever, and they spend a lot of time as to what triggered them. Well, it's not so much what happen that particular day, it's that they're living on the edge just underneath their threshold. So what we got to do is create a, get you lower down on, uh, away from your threshold of whatever symptoms or whatever your manifestation could be physical or behavioral uh, of the unregulated, you know, fight or flight response. And so 
I got it. I, I want to get people off of, and the term is allostatic load. That's when you've had so much load that you start to have breakdown of proteins and so forth and get you focused in. Instead of reacting to load reductions, get you focused in on what I call intentional recovery. And, mm, okay. and, and, and the way I screen when I, if I'm working with athletes or coaches is I got to first get a sense if you even value it. Um, if you're a hard driver and I can't get you to value recovery, um, there's very, it's limited. You know, the things that I, I, I try and be very specific. What I think I can guarantee is if the person recognizes that they're somehow in their own way, what I've gotten good at with the help of my patients is helping people get out of their way. I can't necessarily cure a spinal cord injury. I can't necessarily help you jump higher. But if you're shooting 33% free throws in practice, and I mean in the game and 70% in practice, you know, you're in your own way. And if you don't recognize you're in your own way, um, I already figured out that there's only so far I can get with that person. But if, if they own that, um, you know, we can get you out of your own way. I like that. Uh, I like so, that frame of reference. So, so I got to get people to value recovery, and then I explain it, and then you know we're going to get better and better at measuring it. And and so you got to figure out whether you're looking at hypervigilance, whether you're looking at depletion, whether you're looking at load, or whether you're looking at recovery. And then that's going to lead what tools you use. And uh, what explanations you give and the direction that we're going. So, I want to get uh, I, I want to get people. My ideal scenario of a call. So I've sh- helped shift. So what I'm trying to do. So translational medicine is basically silo breaking. And the shift that I want to do in my bias, instead of picking apart your reductions and load tolerance, I want to get you focused in culturally and your group or patient on intentional recovery, moving towards parasympathetic health. Okay. Mm-hmm. So where where would be good markers of parasympathetic health? Um, you know, if if you go to, you know, there's about a dozen autonomic labs in this country, medical labs, and you do parasympathetic testing, that's well-established, the HRV response to deep breathing, synchronized five seconds in, five seconds out, and you get this resonance between the diaphragm and the heart, and it's, it's maximal efficiency. And, and there we can get the capacity and the health of your parasympathetic nervous system. So I want to do everything to improve that. And when should you be building bone, building muscle, building brain cells? That should be at night. So the numbers for parasympathetic health for me, and at the end of the day someday, is going to be HRV response to deep breathing, but also some of the parameters at night. And just think if everybody got a value each morning and say the high state wrestlers that I work with, and I can get the coach 
if there's a wearable high-grade device and you get an, an HRV value, you can get people to compete on their recovery ability. Mm. Oh, I like that. So, yeah. So, so think about it. They're competing on bench press. They're competing on sprints, grade point averages. But now they're going to have an internal conversation. And somebody obviously can handle more load in practice and the recovery numbers are better. They're going to start asking each other questions. You know, well, knucklehead, I'm not playing Mortal Kombat all night or I'm not in a texting argument with my girlfriend all night. And they'll self-police um, their behaviors to value recovery. Mm, I like so that you're combining the intentional recovery with even an element of competition because athletes are naturally somewhat competitive. And um, as long as, of course, that's a constructive competition then that's going to lead to better outcomes for everyone in in the end. And yeah. so maybe maybe what we can do is, you know, the there's a lot of stuff that we just covered there and we can go through kind of the life cycle of of a particular person and uh say okay, so we've got an injury situation or a pain situation and we're treating this situation an opioid uh maybe part of that initial treatment and also though there's these other tools that can help such as uh synchronous breathing uh with the diaphragm and or resonance breathing with the diaphragm and uh what are some you know how does that all kind of relate to the transition from the use of opioids or maybe even uh, in lieu of the use of opioids have you found that sure. to be related some, to some of those tools yeah. Yeah, I, I think case examples are, are, are good. Um, there's a con So what I explained a little bit earlier was mutual maintenance, that there's a mutual maintenance between hypervigilance and the physical pain. So I had a lady come to me last summer with chronic low back pain. The surgeons didn't think that, they, that she could have, that a surgery would be beneficial. She had a history of panic attacks, and the previous physicians were giving her a short-acting opioid three times a day. And the other thing that's not being talked about, so one of the, one of the reasons I like coming on something like this is it's a different avenue. There's so much opioid noise right now um, that there are some things that aren't even being talked about. So if, 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 if there's someone on an anxiety pill three times a day or several times a day, like just like what was going on with opioids, it's saying, I don't think you can even get through eight hours a day without managing your anxiety with a pill. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that is discouraging. So, so one of the next conversations is, is physicians can't, so again, I'm very stingy. So what I'll do is I'll give them a choice. So she came to me on three Vicodins a day and one addictive anxiety pill a day. I'll try and have them choose one or the other, one pill a day. You get you, initially you get one rescue, and 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 I got to determine first if 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 we're partners in this. If what I call them customers, if they're a customer and they're they're very demanding and so forth, I know that they're at greater risk, and I got to be careful. But if they're going to buy into this deal that we're going to make, um, this is what I'll. This is what I did with her. So 
she continued to get the anxiety one pill a day, so she'd have some comfort, reduce some of that hypervigilance, knowing she had something. I took the three times a day pill and converted it to a once a day pill so that there was less hand to mouth. So she went hand to mouth for opioids once a day and she didn't get a surge and a depletion of the receptors. So so I'll give her some confidence that this this opioid will be in her system and we'll worry about tapering that off later if it's appropriate. And so now I tell him you're exposed. You're exposed with having to have a new coping strategy to fill up all this empty space. So we like to use heart rate variability biofeedback. I think it's the backbone of, of meditation. And I think the simplest, it does several things, but the simplest way, it's grounding. It reduces hypervigilance when done correctly. So, so you don't quite get the pain benefits right away, so we'll choose an easier mark and uh, you know go with one of typically three things. Are you an emotional eater? Uh, do you have what I call racing brain insomnia or panic attacks? You know, if when you breathe five seconds in, five seconds out, you cannot escalate a panic attack. It just can't be done physiologically. Second, you stop, you can go right back to it. But hopefully, if you do it and do it correctly, you can reduce your vigilance and either you can talk yourself down or somebody experienced can talk you down and, and shift your, your thinking. So, so her job with the gasoline is to manage the panic attacks, and we're going to teach you these breathing techniques. My job, I converted the, the pain pills um, and, and, and did that. And then after a couple sessions, uh, two sessions, she had her hopeful moment. She had her aha moment actually uh, last summer in a Walmart during a thunderstorm. She, she could never get through uh, when there was a thunderstorm. And... Apparently, the, the, the roof uh, are, are metal, and it's quite a sound in a thunderstorm at a Walmart. So uh, she used her techniques, and she made it through. And I always put the quotes. I made it through for the first time, unquote, June 2017. Um, and for that, you know, when you've not been succeeding for years, that success can, can be huge. Um, and it becomes slowly... A habit, and slowly you're not quite as depleted as you uh, don't feel as helpless. Oh, that's 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 absolutely huge. I mean, that's you know a perfect example of uh, folks ask all the time, um, "Hey, if I start doing meditation or mindfulness or guided breathing or something, is it gonna make me better?" And you know. Uh, I often don't know these people, so I have no like context to work with. But, you know, what I what I often say is kind of a general recommendation is um, I don't know if it will make you better, so to speak. But I do know that if you're able to integrate it into outside of just that five minute practice and into the rest of your life, that it will much more likely be beneficial to you than if it only occurs to you in that five-minute practice session, right? Mm -hmm. if, if, if you are not recognizing when it's time to intentionally recover or when it's time to fight um, and you can't shift between the three, you need to 
learn how to physiologically ground yourself. Meditation, if you're open-minded and skilled, is enough. If you need the science and some bells and whistles and the, 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 the objective nature, heart rate variability by feedback is one component of meditation, but it's an objective component. So, you know, what I want to be able to do is write a prescription, uh, 10 minutes BID and PRN. That means 10 minutes twice a day as needed. And it's the habit that's essential. And when you have that big success, um, you end up incorporating it more and more. And she came back uh, three or four visits later, and I quote, uh, I'm doing really good, unquote. And uh, she hadn't had a panic attack in, in several weeks. She had stopped going to the emergency department. Uh, one thing in the United States is we don't track how many times you don't go. But uh, her, her, her health care utilization dropped off. And then what sort of shocked me um, was she self-initiated smoking five days earlier to the visit last October. And she, she, what happens to people as they continually, with the habit, they start to think clear and things start to seem, they start to problem solve better. I still had her on the long-acting opioid. The, the next step I do is get people from one pill a day to 20 pills a month. And that's another huge barrier. With that, it gives them the comfort that they still had those 20 either pain pills or anxiety pills for the month. But what I know is now you're consistently 10 days a month going without anything. When you're going without anything, that's also a big success. So she had gotten down to 20 pills a month. And then she self-initiated quitting smoking, proved her sleep. And actually, instead of what usually happens when you quit smoking, she actually lost 24 pounds and started doing some other, um, you know, arts and crafts and, and started to get back. So the third moment, we have a hopeful moment, we have an aha moment, and then one I just described was the welcome back moment. And that's really a fun moment when when you see the person who they really are, uh, less hypervigilant, less depleted. That's huge. So the welcome back. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's amazing to me to hear basically like when somebody gets introduced into a situation where something like an opioid or a painkiller or, um, you know, some type of intervention is required to help basically reset the situation for you right and then from there it's kind of a by getting more in touch with your yourself and using some smart tools like hrv which i say is really just a self-awareness tool almost depending on how what kind of context you're talking about but it helps you get in touch with yourself in a in a measurable kind of easy to understand way and then using these certain techniques like uh, biofeedback, guided breathing, and uh, like you said, being able then to have these aha moments where you have some sort of situation where normally you would have anxiety or a panic attack or emotional eating or some trouble sleeping or something like that. And you're able to integrate those things that you've learned so far to help push through that without needing to lean on the crutch of pills for example um so that's a so, big moment and then we're going to go ahead go ahead so so you know um 
PTSD. About, it's believed that 30 to 50% of all women with chronic pain have PTSD. So they're hypervigilant, get depleted. One of the paradigm shifts that this does, you were talking about insight, uh, what HRV does. One of the big things that I can do in my clinic that, that people really buy into is this changing the conversation. I take it away from right and wrong and personal. I talk about, okay, this event happened in your childhood. It's a black box. It, we have to accept that it will forever trigger you. Let's say it was a dog biting you. That amygdala is going to always be triggered to protect you from dogs. It, it is to help you either run or fight or play dead. Right. And it's right. there to help you. We have to accept it, that. But what happens after that? So some people even come to me after a lot of counseling and say, you know, I've been through all that. Just give me some homework. Perfect. Uh, you're going to start to recognize when it's triggered. And the first thing you're going to do is ground yourself physiologically before you start doing actions and making decisions. And the quick, the more you practice that. And so uh, I can, I, you know, I can talk about health mm -hmm. instead, of, instead of right and wrong or, or these other concepts. And so I'm showing you that you're depleted. Um, what's, what's the right choice here to keep yourself from being depleted? Or what's the right choice if you're hypervigilant and you're making these you know, uh, choosing Twinkies or whatever it is, or opioids or cigarettes. You know, right. let's 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 choose the healthy choice. So I, my fundamental premise, whether it's athletes or not, is that healthy people make better decisions in line with their previously articulated purpose and values. If I can keep the conversation to health and recovery, um. I can get people to uh, make easier choices than some of these incredibly difficult emotional choices. Mm. And that, yeah, and that kind of comes back to, I mean, like you said, if you were to ask somebody, do you like, or would you like to be addicted or dependent on, <laughs> you really insert anything there, X, you know, opioids or sugar or, um, binging on late night Netflix, although I guess some people might say yes to that one. But, um, you know, it's it's something that generally people don't want to be dependent on these things, but it's a, it's a trade-off between what they feel they need to do to avoid something else or they don't have necessarily the guidance or the, uh, you know, inherent self-awareness or they've kind of some point uh, society and culture and modern civilization has kind of disconnected them from their own body in a sense. And these tools will help you bring them back to that and make better choices that will then lead to better health and then better decisions, ultimately letting them fulfill that kind of uh, original intention of, I don't want to be dependent on these things. Right. So, so some of my patients, you know, I have some of the most difficult patients in the health system. Um, now, I'm going to compare it to a, you obviously have a lot of listeners that are high-level athletes, and I'm going to 
correlate some differences and some, some similarities. So the biggest uh, modifier of HRV is exercise. A more powerful diaphragm is a more powerful secondary assist pump to the heart. It's pretty straightforward. So, so you were talking about different things that you crave. Um, and you're trying to decide, you know, between an opioid pill, a cigarette, um, online shoe shopping, uh, or I have to get in 100 miles a week. Now, mm -hmm. clearly deciding to be a fitness uh, uh, that, that you choose fitness is clearly healthier, obviously, than those other choices. But you're not out of the woods. If I'm treating some, a runner and they have a stress fracture in their foot, that is incredibly difficult because they have to be off that foot several weeks beyond the time they feel better. And if they can't help themselves, if they can't ground themselves, they're going to get out running again and keep having this cycle. So, so, even, so, so managing, self-regulating, and, and knowing that this is a time of recovery these several weeks um, that in the long run, you're going to perform better. Uh, if you can't self-regulate, it, it's not a lot of... If you crave 100 miles a week, um, it's, it's vastly healthier than craving Twinkies, but <laughs> it's still craving. Right. And you can run yourself into trouble. And dependence, you know, you can get very philosophical on this almost in the sense that uh, freedom, which is a concept that we talk a lot about in this country, is, uh, you know, people think about it as like freedom from oppression of others or whatever, but freedom is also from dependence. And the more dependent you are on things, the more, the less freedom you're, that you have inherently. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that's an important point. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, just as human as anyone else, so to speak, in the sense that I've had injuries where I was anxious to get back to it. And, you know, you feel pretty good, but you know that you should probably still be doing your uh, physical therapy exercises another couple of weeks before you actually introduce the full shebang again. But then you're like, oh, no, no, I, I think... I think I'm the exception to this rule, right? So uh, just get back into it and then and then it ends up being a vicious cycle. But yeah, hopefully, uh, I mean, I luckily I, I learn a little from my mistakes and have been able to avoid that over the long term, but it's a tough road. It is, um, especially yeah. like you said, because running is, is general or exercising generally is a positive thing. Right. And as we get older, um, we don't have as much reserve, so we have to be a little craftier when we realize that we're not bulletproof. Mm, definitely. Yep. So folks listening, if you have that nagging injury that keeps coming back, <laughs> this may be something to to just have a self-check-in with and, and think about. Um, and obviously there's other other things involved, but maybe something to consider. So... So, Dr. Garbo, let's do this. Um, we've we've had a really good uh, session and a lot of th stuff for folks to think about. Um, and one thing that I almost guarantee is that people are going to want more of this, so they're going to probably be emailing me saying, hey, can you ask Dr. Ron this or that or the other? 
Um, but they can also find some of your work and some of what you're doing online, if I'm not mistaken. So where should folks go if they want to kind of learn more about what you're up to? Sure. Um, so I keep keeping it easy. Uh, people are welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm actually going to uh, try and define intentional recovery. So you're welcome to connect um, and we'll crowdsource the definition. I'm going to put the definition out there. Uh, when you post this podcast and uh, see if people want to add to it and alter it. So LinkedIn's one. Uh, I think what functional medicine a lot of people are doing, um, and this focus, I think, on parasympathetic health is is rehabilitating the autonomic nervous system. So my website is ANS for autonomic nervous system. So it's ansrehabilitation.com. Um I have a 12-minute video there that I try and go over some of the neurobiology of um, letting go, uh, how I've sort of tried to integrate that data. So there's a little video there. Um, and and those, are, those are two places. Uh, that's fantastic. So um, like I said, we've, we've covered a lot of great information here. And if folks have questions or they want to learn more, I would check out ansrehabilitation.com. And uh, also, you know, if you've enjoyed listening to Dr. Garbo and, and us speak, uh, leaving a review over on iTunes for the Elite HRV podcast helps a lot. We'll also be posting links to Dr. Garbo to your LinkedIn and to your website on the show notes over on elitehrv.com in the podcast section. So we'll have links to you there and people can go directly to you as well. Um, I just uh, really appreciate the information that you've shared so far. And I think, you know, people that are on any type of journey, whether it's a recovery journey or trying to navigate the competitive landscape in sports or fitness, I think some of the things that could really stand out to them is, you know, looking for those moments, those hopeful moments, those aha moments, and those welcome back moments. And also just uh, being aware of dependency and on, on any substance um, or even on actions such as, you know, why am I, uh, why am I running 100 miles per week when I have a knee injury? <laughs> and um, things like that. And so uh, I think before I answer gonna... that, let me just lower my vigilance level. <laughs> let me set that aside and let me lower myself and let me think of it clearly. Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, no. That that's actually perfect. That's that's exactly kind of. I think that's more what I was trying to get at, which is perfect. I'm glad you had that addition because it's it's hard. You know, people always say when you're on the outside looking in, like it's easy to see what might be the issue. But when you're in the thick of it, it's really difficult to see what's causing the situation that you're in. And so that's kind of what, like you just said, working on that hypervigilance, restoring that parasympathetic health and that connection with your diaphragm and your autonomic nervous system can really help, you know, almost bring you out of that situation enough to where you can then see what's going on a little bit better and make a little bit better decisions as well. I'll leave you with one little thing. There's the voluntary and the autonomic. So eye blinking is both voluntary and it's also autonomic. 
the biggest wedge, or I guess the buzzword lately is hack, the biggest wedge into your autonomic nervous system is your diaphragm. Is the most powerful way to augment your autonomic nervous system, your voluntary control of your diaphragm. Uh, I, I love that analogy. That's awesome. You're, so you have eye blinking, you have breathing, and uh, what else? There's a, a few basic things that people don't necessarily think of as being both yeah. under your control and both automatic at the same time. That's, that's great. So the diaphragm is uh, a wedge into your autonomic nervous system. Biggest so. one. Awesome. Well, no. So, Dr. Garbo, I really appreciate you coming on. That's ansrehabilitation.com. And we'll, uh, you know, if if people pressure me enough, I may try to strong arm you to get back on here and share some more because I know that you've got a ton of case studies and, and great topics that we could talk about. So I really appreciate you coming on today, though. It would be a pleasure to return. Great. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Garbo. And uh, with that, we'll wrap it. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit HRVCourse.com to get access today.